the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. No wonder people find it hard to understand what we're all about. We Christians, we have a way of talking, a language of our own, We grew up with it so that it has become familiar and comfortable and we've learned to live with the poetry and the seeming contradictions. We've learned to stand reasonably comfortably astride the paradoxes. We sing hymns that are heavy with symbolism that we largely understand but which unchurched people find perplexing, confusing. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fear subside, death of death and hell's destruction land me safe on Canaan's side. Okay. And the tendency is to assume that people will catch on eventually and come to understand this language of Zion that we use Understand it enough for it to be meaningful to them and helpful. If they hang around long enough to decipher the code 
and get a handle on all the metaphors that we use and unpack the imagery. Enough to distinguish the, the prose from the poetry and the symbol from the fact and the history from the opinion. And once you have access to that, once you've learned how to crack the code, everything about the life of faith becomes much clearer. The fog lifts. And you get all those references to Old Testament characters and events. And you understand their cultural and their historical context. And once you get there, that saves you from making that mistake that many make, which is a a casual dismissal of biblical moments because they they just don't get it. They just don't have the background to understand what's happening here. Here's a case in point. The shock and outrage of Richard Dawkins when he talks about the story of Abraham and Isaac up the mountain. Do you remember Abraham convinced for a while that God is testing him and requires that he sacrifice Isaac, his only son, on an altar on top of the mountain just before his hand is stayed and he realises that this God of Israel is different from the pagan gods. He has no time for human sacrifice. This God is the one true God. But when you read the story, without understanding the whole picture, the big picture, the broad view, the long view, it seems a brutal and terrifying, unnecessary ordeal to put anyone through. And certainly not seen as a turning point in Abraham's understanding of his God or his mission or his place in history. Read that story of Abraham and Isaac up the mountain to any group of unchurched fifth and sixth year pupils at school and hear the outrage. Or listen as Dawkins describes it thus. By the standards of modern morality, this disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships, and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defence. I was only obeying orders. That's how the world sees that story. And yet, for centuries, it has been set up by two great world religions as a beacon of faith. A moment of divine revelation. A paradigm of trust in God. From the inside, it's liberating and beautiful. From the outside, it's a brutal abomination. So it's a good discipline for all Christians, not just preachers, to be sensitive to how it sounds out there. The things we say, the stuff we sing. How does it sound in the ears of those who have no background in the faith, no vocabulary of the history of the faith, to inform their response? And the challenge of that is made all the more pressing by the reality that the Christian faith, the Christian worldview, is so countercultural and counterintuitive. So different from the way the world thinks, whether we like it or not, if we're doing it right, Christianity represents an intellectual and spiritual challenge 
to the way the world thinks, the aspirations it pursues, the values on which it places a premium. In short, Christianity is alternative. Welcome to the Christian world of stables and donkey rides and crosses, of sinners and losers and failures, of deniers and betrayers and nails. Mary's song defines our manifesto. He has scattered the proud with all their plans. He has brought down mighty kings from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. Now we're used to that language. And that means when we encounter the paradoxes that sum up the Christian vision, the experience and spirit of the church, we're not really that surprised. We understand this is how it works. We are alternative. So that when Paul reminds the Corinthians that we Christians are people who have nothing, who have nothing, yet have everything, we appreciate that. We see that, yes, indeed, this is who they were, the early church, the hunted, the persecuted, the misrepresented, the misunderstood, vulnerable to the attacks of raw power, demanding a de- um, emperors and world leaders, demanding a devotion the church was not prepared to give. Mighty emperors determined to crush this little infant faith with the most appalling brutality. That's who the church was, this threadbare, shabby bride of Christ, having nothing, this tiny flower of faith, this little flickering flame, so easy to extinguish. And yet they knew they had everything. They had everything. Hope in God, peace that passes understanding, A promise of God's presence with them in their life. A glorious future that he guaranteed to hold in trust for them. They need fear no one. They served a different king. Whose love was their measure and their guarantee. So, when we see them hobble from the dank, dark dungeon into the middle of the arena in the blinding sunlight and stand there while the crowd bade like dogs for their death, and when we see them wait for the gaunt lions and the slavering bears, they were ready. They were ready. Unbearably weak, indescribably strong. They had nothing. They had nothing, yet they knew they had everything. And listen to them sing. There. As Christians working to build the kingdom of God where truth and love rule and the imperative of compassion drives our purposes and underpins our policies, we acknowledge, we recognize the truth. The paradox that Paul presents. That actually, yes, it is the case. When I am weak, I am strong. When I depend on my own ingenuity and struggle against the forces ranked against me, when we try to remake the world in our own 
impulse, using our own initiative, forgetting that God will empower us and enable us. That's when we hit the brick wall. That's when we find ourselves in a cul-de-sac of our own creation. And that's not to deny the gifts of reason and zeal and dedication that God has given us to use for him. It's not to take refuge in some kind of pietism, but to recognize the limits of our vision and the fragility of our resolve and the temptation to pride that comes when we think that all we need to do is come up with a good idea or a great program and that will make the kingdom come. Roll up our sleeves, forgetting to trust in God and wait on his timetable and listen for his prompting. It's when we get to the end of our ingenuity and our pragmatism that his grace comes in to work its changes, bring his miracles. So not programs and procedures and plans, but abandoning ourselves to God listening for his call, trusting in his power, leaning on his heart, waiting for him. Then we are strong, stronger than we dare dream. Lord, help me. Lord, lift me up. Lord, hold me. Lord, put my feet on a rock. And suddenly the game has changed. Now step is firm and sure, and there we are singing. All my hope on God is founded. He doth still my strength renew. As we unpack the paradoxes of faith and dig into the meaning of the seemingly contradictory things we discover in the gospel, they make sense. They are replete with truth. It makes perfect sense to talk about our life as being dead to sin and alive to God. As we try to live our life in a way that's different from the way the world lives, with standards and values and measures set by God, definitions of holiness that are uncomfortable because they are his definitions, and turning our back on the darkness and by grace walking towards the light of God, trying to live our lives by his compassion and his purity, when the world curls its finger and says, come, come this way, come and try this, this will be good. When the wide road is full of people rejecting the ways of God and we find the narrow way of truth hard. We are dead to sin and alive to God. And we are in a very full sense and meaning of it. Buried with Christ and raised to life with him. Because he is the hope of our salvation. We find ourselves welcomed into the presence of God. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Because we put our trust in him. He carries us in his love into the very heart of God. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. And he brought us with him in his risen life into God's presence. We are hid with Christ in God. That's that's how we do it, we Christians. There is no other way. We trust him for time and for eternity. And that explains why we sing. This is who we are. We Christians, the people of paradoxes, 
the people of the faith shot through with paradoxes. When we are weak, we are strong. We are dead to sin and alive to God. We are buried with him and raised to new life in him. We have nothing, yet we have everything. And that's why the church is still singing. That's why the church is still singing. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're going to spend a moment or two in reflection. Georgina's going to sing a lovely hymn, Ancient Words. And when she's finished, we'll stay quiet and bring our prayers for others. Thank mm-hmm. you.